0: I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. So I'm not I'm not entirely certain how to approach this topic, except for saying at the beginning here um, that it's a weird place to be in. I mean, of course, if we we always are hitting on these battering on these dead horses is a weird place to be in where so much consternation and frustration can be uh, drawn out of. Someone inserting uh, Ian McDiarmid's laugh at the very end of a trailer for a Star Wars movie, yeah, and you ju- and you just don't. I, I'm, it, it's it's kind of like how uh, many words are, have been
1: spilled across the page to yeah, about it's about a, that laugh. It's a
0: fucking political battle now. It's like you know, it's the Jets versus the Sharks up in here because there's uh, an audio cue that happens at the end
1: of a trailer. So uh, I guess what I want to talk about is fan service, the idea of fan service, the fact that it's been kind of turned into a pejorative and talk about what it is, why it is, why do we get so angry with it? And does it have to be a negative thing? Because I don't think it has to be, but I think that we use it in a term with the same tone that certain people on the internet use the phrase Mary Sue where it's just like, oh, that's bad, that's stupid. Moving on, and I know that I, even I've used it in that term before, and I know that it can be bad. So I guess just throwing it out there, what is fan service? So we can have a common definition.
2: Do, do I mean, do you want a definition of it, or do you want to know how I feel about
1: it?
0: Well, let's start from
1: a definition, then let's go into that feeling. I mean,
0: is is the common idea is that it's a way in which writers of a continuing property uh try to placate? The most fervent members of their fan base by including things that they know they only they would get or that they really want to see. Is it but is it is it placating? Is that what it is? Well, I
1: think that's the, to have the pejorative lean on it. I, I think well, that I I don't know like, what, what other way you would take it other well, than placating.
2: Wh- the way that I would define it, and you know maybe I'm already putting some bias onto this, but I would say that fan service is the literary equivalent of ice cream, hmm. and. I love ice cream, but I also don't think that I should have it all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that this the same thing about fan service.
1: Well, I, I tend to think of, of fan service as uh, moments and elements that you put into a story that are there to speak to people that are longtime fans of that property. So, like, when the X-Men movies started coming out, there would be a scene where a character would look at a computer screen and say, oh, these are mutants that we know about. And there would be Easter eggs all over that screen. And it would be on screen for maybe a second, but you can go, oh, there's multiple man. Oh, there's Ardian and leech. And there were elements like that, or they would have a line that would mean something to certain members of the audience that, but would fly past everyone else. And, um, or an element, um, like you're reading a star Wars novel And you're like, oh, my God, that character there is Nien Nub. That's Lando's co-pilot from Return of the Jedi. Let's talk a bit more about him and have him in there. And it's kind of exciting to see a thing that you recognize or a thing that you know about. It's like a little reward for having been a fan. And sometimes it can be really obnoxious and it can grind everything to a halt. But sometimes it can be subtly done. And um, be a lot of fun, and sometimes it can be both of those things and still fun. It can be, be really obnoxious and fun, and I think it's a it's a question of where and when these things are appropriate. I
0: mean, you might have the most significant thing that you might have said there is Easter egg, as an idea that the idea that um, it's something that's there that's not overt, but people who are paying attention, people who are well versed. Um, they will they'll get it if they are looking hard enough and they're paying attention and if you're a true fan you'll you'll understand what's end up happening the easter egg but that's implying a very very limited thing it doesn't affect the plot all that much you're right maybe it's a, a screenshot of a computer maybe it's a name that's a throwaway line of a name for something that's there that's at least that's easter egg that's sort of different than like han solo bingo you know
1: yeah that was the thing was like, right that like solo a star wars story is full of fan service it it has a bunch of stuff in it like oh that's how han solo got his blaster for instance is a moment in that movie how han solo got his name like little origins for elements about a character and uh having them appear in a movie and i i I've kind of... It's weird because then you compare that to something that I'm enjoying a lot lately, which are the Ghostbusters comics that are published by IDW. Now, the those ones um, are chock-a-block full of fan service. Like, obnoxiously so. Um, but I love it. I love every fucking minute of it. There are moments where they fight a ghost that is straight up one of the fucking toys. <laughs> There's this one ghost that... Uh, is purple. And when you squeeze him, this eyeball and a string on his forehead pops out and they put it in the fucking thing. And he, the string is part of it too. Uh, there are, There's a moment <laughs> where there's an alternate universe version of them that are dressed in these weird alternate costumes that the toy line had. They did a storyline in that comic where they crossed universes and teamed up with the real Ghostbusters from the 80s cartoon. So the Bill Murray Ghostbusters and the Lorenzo Music Ghostbusters team up on an adventure. And uh, there's even a moment where, you know, the two, everyone gets a lot except, except for the two Peter Venkmans who hate each other. Well, of course they do. And one of them even says, like... I think uh, the Bill Murray one goes, hey, Egon, would it destroy the universe if I punched this guy? And both Egon's both working on something without looking up, just go, no. <laughs> and I,
0: well,
1: love
2: that. I would say that part and parcel with the idea of fan service is the expectation that it is not significant to the plot of the story. Mm-hmm. That if, it's a, if it wasn't there, it would not affect things one way or the other. And so I think that what you're describing actually goes outside of fan service. I think that I would not consider that to be fan service.
1: Well, this is the weird thing is that they'll, they just did, I just read a massive crossover where the... The Ghostbusters, the real Ghostbusters, the extreme Ghostbusters, the 2016 Ghostbusters, um, all teamed up in a cross-dimensional thing. And there's elements including things from Ghostbusters 2, Ghostbusters the video game, Ghostbusters the toy line. And I mean, this is about as fan service as you can get. So why do I, I not hate this? And I was thinking about it. It's because it takes place in an expanded universe crossover thing and not in the main movie. If somebody made this as a movie, I would find it so obnoxious. Well, they they did that with the Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When the,
2: mm-hmm. uh, I want to say like 2008 era cartoon or something like that in its final movie crossed over with the 1980s cartoon version. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. And it was very fan servicey in certain ways, but I wouldn't consider the film as a whole to be fan service per se, insofar as the thing that's happening—these old characters crossing over with the new characters—is the point of the movie. Yeah, it's not an aside, it's not an Easter egg, it's not an extra. It is the thing that is happening.
1: That they're having a there's a commentary on different versions of these characters, and you can say the same thing is true of uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse that it could be considered a massive piece of fan service that every version of Spider-Man that appears in that movie has appeared in comics before, including in the end credits. So, I mean, Spider-Gwen had her own comic before in her own universe. The spectacular Spider-Ham has appeared in comic books before. And the idea of having them all team up together um, is great. I think that's awesome. But it wasn't just the spectacle of that. It was an ability to pull back and talk about Spider-Man, the phenomenon, Spider-Man, the character, Spider-Man, the piece of pop culture. And it was much more ambitious than simply just going, isn't it cool that all the toys are in the same box right now?
2: Yeah, like in that film when they're in the spider layer and you're seeing all of the Spider Man costumes from over the years and the spider buggy, that is fan service. Yeah, you know, was the spider buggy not in the background of that movie, it would not have changed what happened one iota, and yet the fact that it was there was something that is a you know, a gift to the fans, if you will, something to go, hey, remember this thing. Mm-hmm. And that's all that it asks of you, simply that you remember that this existed.
1: And there's a lot of things that do that. What are the, why are the ones that we find obnoxious, do, why do we consider them obnoxious, and why do these ones seem endearing?
0: Is the the is the, how obnoxious they are a function of how
1: obscure they are? I mean- Because
0: I, mean, I, I know you're coming from the, the realm of comic books, where yeah. even the most insignificant minutiae- in a comic book 50 years ago will be picked up by a writer who grew up on those comics and expanded upon because that's sort of part of the medium, right? That's sort yeah. of part of the way that comic books have been around. But the thing about the idea of this little a nugget of fan service that's like the spider buggy or Gambit's name on a computer screen is this tiny little thing that is not very well known and because it's not very well known, it's not that big of a deal if you don't get what it is. It's a different thing if it's something that is incredibly popular and that uh, almost everyone who's know, uh, you know, almost everyone who uh, is watching this no watching this movie or seeing this TV show knows this thing that exists and trying to hit every beat. Like there, I think maybe part of it is the idea of, um, or maybe a good example is is it X three that had the I'm the Juggernaut bitch yeah s- stuck in there. That's definitely a very obscure thing that was also kind of a real cringe worthy. They moment. tried to make
1: it a big thing, but the weird thing is that the post credit sequence of of uh, Spider-Verse also has a joke about a Spider-Man internet meme with the two Man pointing at each other. And they make that hilarious. Um, I
2: I think the thing that's obnoxious about fan service, let's say when it's done poorly, is that it's essentially gristle. It's Mm. something extra that's on there that doesn't really serve any useful purpose. And I think, especially when it comes to film, film is a medium of thrift. Everything that's on the screen, everything that you see, everything that's shown to you and that happens is there because it serves a specific purpose. And when you can kind of insert it seamlessly on there's a computer and there's a screen with a bunch of names and it's giving you this idea that, okay, they're tracking mutants. And it just happens to be that those are names that some people might already know. That's fine. Or when it's a spider buggy in the background of a shot where you're trying to emphasize the point that Spider-Man's got a lot of gadgets, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But when you are inserting it into a scene to the level of distraction where it doesn't need to be there, it doesn't serve a purpose. It is there simply so that a fan can have this feeling of, hey,
1: I know that that is the point at which it becomes obnoxious. Because I was also thinking about it as a potential gatekeeper sort of mechanism that um if you make something that has so much fan service in it or so specific fan service or fan service that you can't pull out of the plot and still have it make sense that is just completely inaccessible to anyone who isn't that hardcore fan um isn't it especially with the most like for instance it's one thing to to do this in a medium where like star wars for instance um Those sorts of those sorts of moments bother me a lot less if they take place in the confines of a Star Wars novel or a Star Wars comic than in the Star Wars movie, because my perception, generally speaking, is that the main thing, the Star Wars movie, that's for everybody. But Star Wars comics, Star Wars merchandise, Star Wars novels tend to be for hardcore people. So I don't mind as much if they tend to be a bit more obscure, a bit less accessible, because you're kind of taking that extra step to get more Star Wars. And that's why that that Ghostbusters comic, when it's full of moments like that, don't bother me, because it's like you're already kind of getting more. It's like this is the Ghostbusters that you're putting into your vein rather than the Ghostbusters that you take in like on a Saturday afternoon because it just happens to be playing on AMC. And I I feel that same way with it's why I find it kind of obnoxious when, um, solo a Star Wars story is so full of nothing but Easter eggs with very little um, very little stuff aside from those Easter eggs, but if that had been a Star Wars novel, I wouldn't have given a shit because you're like oh, okay, of course there's a Star Wars novel about you know how Han Solo won the Millennium Falcon. I I get that. That's just that's gonna be that way. I'm not surprised, but. It's kind of weird when it gets, when it's the thing that's for everybody, it just becomes gatekeepery and it just keeps people out of the thing completely rather than just being like, okay, that's just a bit too much Star Wars for me. Maybe I'll stick to the movies. Does that make any sense at all? Mm, Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I agree with you. And I think I would even take it a step further, going back to my analogy with ice cream, where something that is supposed to be a treat becomes the main course where... As with Solo, like the, the Easter eggs, the references to other things, the tying of things together is so integrated into the movie that you can say that that is what the movie is about. Mm-hmm. And that is frustrating because if you take those things away, you no longer have a coherent thing. Uh, the other property that this really frustrates me with, um, and I guess this is a slightly different kind of fan service, is Doctor Who. Because at a certain point when Doctor Who was revived in 2005, it was being written by people who had grown up watching Doctor Who and really cared about those characters and loved them. And so wanted to write series after series after series talking about how great they are and how amazing and perfect and wonderful and life changing these characters are and how every minute with them is a joy. And it completely killed my ability to care about this character in any way because of how far up this character's butt the writers were Mm -hmm. where they were. Unwilling to really ever challenge them or consider them to be fallible on any level or to really put things in front of them that make them work or struggle or have any sense of dramatic tension in them, because you know that they're magically going to make everything okay at the end.
1: And we've talked about this a bit before, the idea of of fan fiction. And I think that. Um, I don't think fan fiction is bad in a, in and of itself. I, I really don't, and I think that it, I think like with the term fan service, fan fiction becomes a bit of a pejorative too. And I think it's a little lazy to make it just a pejorative. Um, I mean everything technically is fan fiction is is Tom King, the current writer of the Batman comic series, is he writing fan fiction? I mean, he's getting paid for it. Is that the only difference that a company that owns a property is paying him money to do it officially? Versus somebody who just writes Batman stories on their own. Um, I don't know. But I think that what sort of separates a lot of bad fan fiction is that they have an inability to pull themselves out of the fan element of their their relationship to these characters to just, just tell good stories. Like, there's a lot of wish fulfillment that goes into them. Like, you're like, oh, this I want these two characters to hook up, or I want this outcome to happen. And it becomes more about doing things that you wish would happen to those characters rather than telling a story. And I think one of my favorite things that you can do in a story is have a story give me something that I didn't think that I wanted, but oh my God, that's amazing. I want to be surprised, And I think sometimes there's a lot of baggage that comes in with being a fan, which is why I think, you know, Star Trek Nemesis is kind of bad fan fiction, even though the corporation Paramount that owned Star Trek paid this screenwriter, I think it's John Logan, to write that movie, but it still felt like he was doing wish fulfillment and in a weird sort of way writing a fan film that remade Star Trek II.
2: It's interesting that you say that because I was just reading a thing this morning talking about the Pixar films and how often in those movies, the characters don't get what they want. You know, in Up, the, the main character is trying to take his house to Paradise Falls to fulfill a promise with his wife, to his wife. And that never happens. In Toy Story, the toys are trying to stay with Andy, this child who is growing up. And that doesn't happen either. That so frequently in those movies, the characters don't get what they want, but they find that in the end, they have gotten the thing that they truly needed. Yeah. And that that's okay, that you're not always going to meet your goals, but you can still achieve success despite that. And I think that that's true of a lot of fan service and fan fiction that... They're trying to give the characters the thing that we as the audience want them to have. Mm -hmm. You know, we want Peter Parker to get over his neuroses and have a happy life instead of constantly being tormented by Mm Spider-Man. We want Bruce Wayne to get over the death of his parents and be a happy and fulfilled person. But those are not necessarily the things that are appropriate for those characters, or, with, or that are narratively satisfying to an audience.
1: And they they preclude your ability to even keep that character. That you're basically saying, "I wanted, to, I want this thing to just end." Yeah. That it's the same thing with like Bruce Banner curing himself of the Hulk. Um, the story's over. If he just goes back to being a repressed scientist again. One of the things I really loved in Endgame is they give you a thing you didn't expect, which is that Bruce Banner does get some kind of resolution, but it's not the resolution of I'm cured of being a monster. It's I've made peace with the monster and now I'm kind of a dorky monster. <laughs> and I think getting that third answer to these sorts of questions is a lot more satisfying that you you get something that feels like it's been earned by that quest and that... Them accepting something that they weren't striving for, and maybe even finding that it's a more appropriate, more needed conclusion to their story is a character arc, rather than them simply getting the wish fulfillment. Because you know when we feel very emotionally attached to a character, as fans do, we want them to have the thing that makes them happy. Like, oh man, I wish Peter Parker wouldn't struggle with money. It's hard to watch him do that. But I also really enjoy watching Peter Parker be the butt monkey of the universe. <laughs> That's part of the fun of it, is that he's, he's kind of the Charlie Brown superhero. Um, so yeah, that's, that's part of the formula.
2: He's the Rodney Dangerfield of superheroes.
1: Exactly. I mean, you don't (laughs) want, you don't want too many good things to happen because that's where the drama comes from is people not getting a thing that they want or being, having their quest for the thing that they want be complicated. And it's like, this is what I love about the end of the Lord of the Rings is that Frodo basically fails that he goes on this long quest and it's only through accident. And then that one moment of mercy that Bilbo has in a cave to this crazed junkie that he just robbed is ultimately the thing that (laughs) saves the world. The fact that he felt a bit of pity and that, that the thing that saved the world, isn't the strength of Boromir's sword arm. Um, It's more of the strength of, to, you know, Boromir is the character, you know, Aragorn is the character. These are the people that would have been the hero of any other fantasy story. But what I love with this is that it's it's not the that, uh, that he's just a better fighter than everyone else. That, that's why Frodo saves the world. He kind of fails and then wins by accident. But even after that, the experience of going through all of this stuff, he gets to go back to Bag End and live in the house that he was in at the beginning of the story. But it's not satisfying anymore that the act of going through this experience and the trauma that's associated with it changes him, and he finds that he can't want this anymore because it's not satisfying and there's an impact to doing this stuff on him both emotionally and physically that he has to reckon with and that's not something a lot of stories want to do certainly i was just thinking about into darkness
0: about star trek into darkness and about how there's this um a lot of the what was wrong with the movie was based on i think a misapprehension of what you need to make a Star Trek story, a Star Trek story, and you know we could probably lay this at the feet of Bob Orsi and Alex Kurtzman, I suppose. But like the idea that well, you got to do a story with Khan that involves someone screaming Khan, you know, like that it has to be he he has to be the leader of uh, this band of um, this band of uh, you know revived. Genetically superior humans. You have to shoehorn all of this in, and then I was just thinking about the sheer stupidity of the end of him having magic triple blood or magic. uh, They just cured death at the end of that movie. Magic healing blood for the sake of well, you kind of have to. The toys still can't have to be not broken at the end, and to me, that's the that it is. That is the the my poster child for the worst kind of sort of Star Trek fan services is like, we well, you're not really telling an interesting story because you're breaking all sorts of rules and it's, it's not as interesting or fun when you get to the end of it, when you're like, why, why, why did we do that? Oh, because we needed to get
1: at the status quo at the end. You yeah, know? I think if they were going to have to redo anything with Khan in a movie, that you don't remake... A Wrath young of- Khan! No, no, yeah, you don't remake <laughs> Wrath of Khan, you remake Space Seed. And you just do die hard on the Enterprise and have an opportunity to go to parts of the Enterprise that you don't normally go. That's what First Contact was. First Contact has a lot of that, too. But I mean, that's a lot more interesting to me of Captain Kirk, who knows his ship better than anyone else. And all of these other people having to fight people on their ship, if you have to do con at all. And I'd probably prefer not to, because we've already done the con movie. And we're not going to top it. So you're immediately inviting, you know, not flattering comparisons right off the bat. And casting a white guy didn't help. (laughs) But especially when his name is Khan Noonien Singh and he's he's a British white guy. And I love Benedict Cumberbatch to death. But if you're going to have him play some Star Trek villain, make him what was the name of Kirk's friend in the first episode who became a god? Gary... Gary Powers. Mitchell. Or oh, yeah. And there were, there
2: were a lot of people who sp- were speculating that he was playing D- Gary Mitchell. Yeah. yeah.
1: That he was this guy who got too close to the edge of the universe and it kicked this, like, Tetsuo-esque superpowers into him and he had to be killed. I mean, it basically... That first... That, that second pilot of Star Trek is kind of Akira. <laughs> now that I think about it. Where the best friends have to fight on the planet. <laughs> Mitchell Kirk, <laughs> but yeah, it's kind of the that, same. That thing. That said,
0: you even in Star Trek Beyond, which is you know, it may be maybe the last of the new new cast movies. We'll never know, but Probably. it ha- but it does have elements of that that are fun, which is like the the ship is crashed and it's still around, but there's shit that needs to be taken care of, and it's because Kirk knows the ship and knows his crew and knows what needs to be done that he. I think the some of the more clever parts about that movie come into play that are subtle, unlike the first two iterations of where there's nothing subtle that's happening at all. Yeah. with what's I, going on? I liked Star Trek Star Trek Beyond a
1: lot. And I I have not seen it. Oh, no. and you're not alone because a lot of people didn't see it because they didn't like Star Trek Into Darkness,
2: and that's exactly why I didn't see it. But I, if I recall correctly, Beyond is directed by Brian Singer, not J.J. Abrams. Is that right?
1: Uh, no, it's um by James Wan who did i think he did uh fast and furious 7 he's done a bunch of horror movies mm-hmm. um he's done a lot of things but he, he James Wan did the Aquaman movie he did the Aquaman movie that's interesting um i i liked it and what i really liked about it was that it it was very character centered it was a lot more about these characters in this sort of situation it felt like star trek again it was a lot more about big ideas it showed more of the future that they lived in um it made me. It was the first look at the future in one of these movies. I'm like, I want to live there. I want to live on that space station. That looks incredible. That's a future I want to live in. Um, but yeah, I would. I would highly recommend it. But I think the two things that hurt that movie more than anything were Into Darkness left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, so they didn't check this one out. And there was a trailer that. Uh, sort of played up that Beastie Boys song and people went, wow, not for me. The weird thing is the Beastie Boys thing is done really well in the movie. It's it's actually a plot element.
0: (laughs) It works surprisingly well. And I, But I, I would ask, so speaking of James Wan, that's a good cut across for you being the man who once had the Washington State vanity plate for Aquaman on your car. Yeah. I mean, how do you feel about the Aquaman movie in terms of... Um, fan service because there was certainly a lot of crazy shit oh, thrown yeah. into that movie for the sake of, I think, crazy shit in, a, in an Aquaman movie.
1: Um, I, I like it. I like that movie for the most part. Um, I, I think I probably would, I, I like, um, Jason Momoa a lot. Um, I probably would have his hair and beard trimmed a bit more and make him look more like the brave and the bold Aquaman. If I had a choice, um, I've never been a big fan of Aquaman with super long hair in any incarnation. For some reason, it just, it, it bugs me. Um, I it's it's one of those things that I just I have a hard time getting past. I love Jason Momoa, just give him a haircut. <laughs> um, um, I think what I, they kind of did with it was I think the movie for the most part I enjoy it, but it feels overstuffed. Yeah, but it feels overstuffed because I get the impression the people making the movie didn't know if they'd get to make a second Aquaman, so they just made both of the Aquaman movies they were going to make as one movie. Um, I think it does what I want an Aquaman movie to sort of feel like, which is to feel like the sort of Edgar Rice Burroughs, Princess of Mars kind of world, but just underwater with this uh, hero coming from another world to save that world. It's a lot of crazy monsters that they're riding, and it's got Dolph Lundgren in, in shiny mermaid armor riding a giant uh, seahorse. It's got an octopus playing the drums. Um, I'm on board for all of these things. And I kind of love that it just kind of lets itself be crazy and colorful. And I would I have preferred it be split into two movies? Yes, I would. But, I mean, DC movies were in a very, very fragile place. And I can understand why they thought, hey, this might be the last one. So I might as well get it all in there. Well, and
0: if... if- Uh, this year and last year were any indication. I mean, with Shazam, I think being pretty fucking serviceable for a good. Shazam is probably
1: the best one they've done so far.
0: Um, and everything that I've heard coming down the pike about, um, Joker is kind of interesting i think the re- i think the reason i think i've heard that the writing is not specs it's not stellar however it's made great by the fact that they have an actor who's committed to doing it and com- committed to making the character study the piece of it that's interesting and you know joaquin phoenix has done this over and over and over again has just decided to make something insane with a character make something so deep and multifaceted and messy about the way he does characters that to me is worth the pr- the cost of admission
1: i'm i have uh, I, I i i want to really love that movie because the trailers have been very good um i don't know what it's going to turn out to be i never wanted a joker movie um it could it be great yes i don't know so i just go into it with very low expectations, because then I can only be pleasantly surprised. Um, they're kind of going for that. What is the name of that De Niro movie? King of King Comedy. Of comedy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Where he's like a, a crazy person. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what this movie is going to be. It could be great and it could be really terrible if it sort of becomes this I don't know, beacon for all the maladjusted people who'd like to shoot up a mall, Yeah, then I don't want that. But if it...
0: It, it, And it also is unfortunate since it lacks the sort of moral pull of of Batman to yeah. basically be the one to say there no well if you're doing this there's going to be a batarang coming at your teeth you know Yeah
1: but we also can't control how stupid audience members are to not buy understand It's like with you know all the maladjusted Adjusted people that think that uh, Jack Nicholson is the hero of a few good men <laughs> Well if he's so fucking great then why is he letting those kids go to fucking prison for him fuck him for all his big speech. That's what I love is that he gives a big speech and he gets it thrown in his fucking teeth. He's the villain of the movie who says, Hey, I give you freedom. So I should have the right to brutalize bully and straight up kill people under my command. Fuck him. He's the bad guy. And a and a speech doesn't change. Same thing with like Gordon Geckos. And the Walter White says that Walter White is a villain. It's a, it's a, it's a character piece on a villain. And the people who don't get that, I don't know what I can do because I'm not going to baby down, um, the art that we make because some people are too stupid to get it like the people that don't understand that like RoboCop and Starship Troopers are satire (laughs) I can't control that they're that dumb but it doesn't my my solution to that at the same time is it doesn't mean we don't make that stuff Um, I think we just have to all do the individual work to help other people be less fucking stupid (laughs) and that's hard and because some people really really like being stupid and you can't stop them. I mean, I've seen right wingers who, who are like, oh, the next thing you're going to tell me is that RoboCop is political. Like, fucking yes. <laughs> how how can you be like an alt-right guy and be a Star Trek fan? I just, I don't get it. But people find a fucking way to square that circle. <laughs> people manage
2: amazing feats of obliviousness. The Punisher was supposed to be villain. villain. He was supposed to be a bad guy. You were supposed to look at him and go, that is not how a hero should be. And now you have, like, uh, a town in Kentucky that wants to put the Punisher logo on every single one of their police cruisers. <laughs> My fucking God.
1: What? Uh, there, wow. there, are, there are cops that already do this shit. And I think it's gotten to the point that the Punisher comic addressed that and said, fuck you. Yeah. It's like, I'm sorry, the Punisher is an unhinged serial murderer who goes after criminals. He is the bad guy. He is the exact opposite of how we want the cops to act. And fuck. Fucking frequently how they do act because like the Punisher, they don't go to jail. (laughs) It's just, it's fucking crazy. It's fucking crazy. But yeah, if you want to get a good, if you see the Punisher uh, skull on a car with a blue line on it, you're like, oh, okay, I get it. You're fascist. that's what you are because it's not just that i enjoy this fictional character you're saying this is how our government should act because you're you are with that blue line affiliating the punisher with the police fuck you thank you (laughs) (laughs) my point
0: radio versus the martians is hosted by mike gillis and casey doran this podcast is recorded in beautiful val verde in seattle washington our chief engineer is casey doran and our editor is mike gillis Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobiah Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield-Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online... At RadioVersusTheMartians.com.
1: Don't you know who I am? (laughs) I'm the Juggernaut, bitch!